Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchange's World News Roundup for Saturday, January 13th, and Sunday, January 14th, 2024. Uh, before we get started, uh, I periodically uh, make this appeal. I have uh, uh, often in this newsletter used the work of the World Politics Review uh, online journal, uh, in either linking to the pieces or just reading them and kind of uh, using them to help help me kind of coordinate my thoughts. Um, it's a it's a really good journal. It covers a, a wide range of topics. Um, there is a link in the uh, newsletter tonight for people if you if you're interested in uh, subscribing to World Politics Review. You can click it. Uh, sign up for their free newsletter, and you'll get an offer to uh, subscribe uh, at a substantial discount if you're interested. Uh, if folks have read Alex Thurston's work, uh, he writes for this site, uh, Foreign Exchanges, uh, f fairly regularly. He's written, he wrote a couple pieces uh, last year and, and will undoubtedly write at least a couple this year. Uh, he's written for World Politics Review on a number of occasions, so if you, if you like his work, uh, you can find some of it there. And uh, it's just a, a quality site. I don't always agree with everything that I read there, but uh, they do cover it, they cover things, I think, conscientiously. And uh, uh, I do recommend it if you want to broaden your uh, horizons in the world of international affairs. So please do check that out. All right, let's get into the newsletter. There are, as always, a few anniversaries. On January 13th, 532, the Nika riots began in Constantinople. Uh, this is one of the more uh, comic affairs, I don't know, partly comic, partly really tragic uh, affairs in Roman history. Two factions of chariot team racing fans, the Greens and the Blues, uh, who were both frustrated over things like taxation, corruption, uh, and crackdowns on hooliganism because you had chariot hooligans just like you have football hooligans today. Uh, they revolted during that day's chariot races in the Hippodrome. Over the next week, they seized control of the city, crowned their own emperor, a man named Hypatius, who it turns out didn't really want to be crowned emperor, uh, seems to have been against his wishes. Uh, and they nearly put the real emperor, who at the time was Justinian I, to flight. He was ready to pack his bags and leave, uh, was talked out of it by his wife, who uh, kind of questioned his manhood in a sense. Uh, Justinian and his military officers were eventually able to regain control of the situation. They bribed a number of the leaders of the Blues uh, to abandon the cause, and then they were able to get out of the city. Uh, and bring soldiers in and essentially massacre uh, many of the Greens and the, those Blues who were still left uh, rioting in the Hippodrome. So it turned out to be uh, a tragedy. I don't mean to, to chuckle quite so much. The death toll was probably pretty substantial, uh, but it is kind of an absurd affair in the, the big scheme of things. Uh, on January 14th, 1761, the ruler of Afghanistan, Ahmad Shah Durrani, who was the... Uh, founder of the Durrani Empire, uh, fought the Third Battle of Panipat. This one was against the uh, uh, the uh, Maratha Confederation. Sorry, I blanked out for a second there. Uh, the reason that there are three battles of Panipat is because Panipat is located in northern India uh, on the best route from the Hindu Kush into the Punjab and on to the, the Sindh and other regions of uh, the Indian subcontinent. Uh, and so uh, powers that uh, came out of Central Asia and wanted to, uh, shall we say conquer India, would go through Panipat, and it was a good place to fight a battle, and so a number of times uh, there were battles fought here. 
Um, the this third battle, uh, as I say, involved uh, D- the Durrani dynasty in Afghanistan, who were coming to the aid, at least notionally, of the Mughal Empire, which was almost defunct at this point. They ruled very little uh, practically uh, of India. And the Maratha Confederation was a Hindu polity that was growing in power and strength from southern India uh, and moving kind of central India, I guess, uh, and moving north and was challenging the Mughals. This battle was won by Ahmed Shah. Durrani. Uh, it fended off the Marathas for a little while, gave the Mughals a little bit more time on uh, in in some semblance of actual power. Uh, but Durrani didn't really care about the Mughals. He kind of took what he wanted and then left. Uh, and the Marathas were eventually able to establish uh, a dominance over the Mughal uh, defunct or, or kind of rump Mughal empire that lasted through uh, the arrival of the British. And then, you know, things uh, really got great for everybody in India at that point. Um, and on January 14th in uh, 2011, Tunisian dictator Zine al-Abidine Ben Ali resigned after over 23 years in power and almost a month of protests. Uh, ben Ali's resignation marked the successful conclusion of the Tunisian Revolution. Uh, this date is annually commemorated as Revolution and Youth Day in Tunisia, or at least it was. I'm not sure if it will be under Qais Saeed. Uh, it was also the first major victory, the first... Uh, the figurative scalp, if you were, of the Arab Spring movement, and it helped to spark and motivate similar movements in Libya, Egypt, Syria, elsewhere. Um, none of those really worked out uh, quite as successfully, and I'm not even sure at this point you can say uh, Tunisia was all that successful, but it's uh, still a work in progress, I suppose. On to the news. We start in the Middle East in Israel-Palestine, where Sunday marked 100 days since the attack by Hamas and other militant groups in southern Israel, and it proceeded as most of the previous 99 days had with an intense Israeli military or IDF bombardment of Gaza. The death toll has climbed to nearly 24,000, with the Israeli military claiming that some 9,000 of those have been combatants. Fighting continues to focus on central and southern Gaza with no movement, as far as I can tell, on the issue of allowing any of the civilians presently trapped there to relocate to the now comparatively less dangerous, not actually, you know, safe, but less dangerous uh, northern Gaza. Uh, Off the killing field, you'll no doubt be very troubled to learn that Joe Biden is really cross with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This comes from Axios on account of how every time Biden says, here's some more mortar shells and please don't use them to blow up any more kids, Netanyahu tells him to go piss up a rope. Uh, We have hit the point where the narrative out of the White House is that these mean Israelis just won't listen to us. And golly, there's just nothing we can do about it. Netanyahu won't even accede to Biden's request that he release the tax revenue his government is currently withholding from the Palestinian Authority. Axios reporter Barack Ravid helpfully stenographed one U.S. official fretting that, quote, the situation sucks and we are stuck. The president's patience is running out, end quote. Uh-oh, sounds like trouble. Uh, as president of the United States, if Joe Biden wants to act on his alleged frustration, he certainly can. He is not stuck. These carefully leaked quotes are supposed to wash Biden's hands of Gazan blood, and honestly, they're more offensive and more embarrassing than when the president was practically cheering on on the carnage a few weeks ago. At least that seemed authentic and didn't try to portray the United States of America, the Israeli government's main arms dealer uh, and a global superpower, as helpless to do anything but stand by and watch the massacre while continuing to supply those arms. Elsewhere, uh, in remarks coinciding with the 100-day mark over the weekend, Netanyahu insisted that nobody will stop Israel from achieving its objectives, including the Hague, 
uh, phrasing that probably isn't doing his legal team any favors. One of those objectives is ostensibly to free the remaining hostages, so it may be relevant that the Hamas spokesperson who goes by the name Abu Ubaidah said in a statement on Sunday that, quote, the fate of many, end quote, of the hostages is now unknown because of the Israeli bombardment. It's possible he's offering a pre-excuse for hostages Hamas already already knows are dead and who may have died in any number of ways since their abduction. But it's certainly conceivable that Israeli bombs have killed a number of the people Netanyahu claims he's trying to rescue. There was significant activity along the Lebanese-Israeli border on Sunday. According to the IDF, a group of gunmen attempted to cross into Israel overnight, but were intercepted by Israeli soldiers with at least three of the would-be invaders and two Israeli civilians being killed in the firefight. The identity of the gunman isn't clear, but Palestinian militants have attempted that crossing a number of times since October 7th. Later in the day, a missile attack from Lebanon killed an Israeli, uh, an elderly woman and her son in the northern Israeli village of Kfar Yuval. The IDF says it retaliated by striking targets in Lebanon. Uh, and Al Jazeera catalogs uh, in a piece uh, published on Sunday the IDF's seemingly systematic destruction of Gaza's historical sites. Uh, it's there's no way, of course, to prove that the IDF is intentionally targeting these sites. But as with the shockingly high number of journalists, it's killed the notion that it's just randomly bombing cult- culturally significant sites over and over again starts to beggar belief. Uh, obviously, these sorts of concerns are secondary to the lives being lost. But Gaza's history and culture do appear to be very real casualties of this operation. Uh, in Iraq, Islamic State fighters reportedly attacked a military checkpoint near the town of Haditha in western Iraq's Anbar province on Sunday evening, killing at least three soldiers. At least one additional soldier was wounded. Uh, and the Turkish military spent much of the weekend bombing Kurdish militants in northern Iraq and northern Syria in retaliation for the Kurdistan Workers' Party or PKK attack on a Turkish outpost in northern Iraq that we covered on Friday that killed at least nine soldiers. According to Turkish officials, their airstrikes on Saturday struck several targets and killed at least 45 militants. In Yemen, I presume it won't come as a tremendous surprise to learn that those Thursday, Friday U.S. and U.K. airstrikes against Houthi targets in northern Yemen didn't work. Uh, I mean, I guess that's a subjective conclusion, but I base it on reports that, one, the strikes didn't meaningfully diminish the Houthis' capacity to attack ships in the Red Sea, and two, they also haven't meaningfully deterred the Houthis from future attacks, at least not if the group's statements are to be believed. I'm unclear on that basis how those strikes could be considered successful, except, I guess, insofar as we got to bomb some stuff and there's nothing the U.S. government and media love more than when we bomb stuff. The U.S. military carried out additional strikes on Saturday, but it is denying reports of still more attacks on Sunday. In Asia and Afghanistan, a suicide bomber attacked the office of the governor of western Afghanistan's Nimruz province in the city of Zaranj on Sunday, wounding three guards. Uh, There's been no claim of responsibility, but it would be reasonable to assume that this was an Islamic State operation. Uh, In Pakistan, a militant attack in that country's Balochistan province left at least five soldiers dead on Saturday. The still unspecified attackers detonated a bomb that targeted a Pakistani military vehicle and then engaged the survivors in a firefight. Three of the militants were also killed. Also on Saturday, the Pakistani military said that its forces killed four alleged militants in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. In Taiwan, Democratic Progressive Party candidate and current Taiwanese Vice President Lai Ching-te won the country's presidential election with a bit over 40% of the vote on Saturday, finishing a bit over six points uh, ahead of runner-up 
uh, Hu Yuyi of the uh, the Kuomintang. Uh, Legislatively, however, uh, the DPP appears to have suffered a significant setback, losing its majority and finishing behind the KMT. Uh, It seems neither party will hold a sole majority in the 113-seat parliament, which puts a considerable amount of leverage in the hands of the small Taiwan People's Party as the potential swing vote. The TPP aligns more closely with the Guomindang on the subject of Taiwan's relationship with China, though in other areas it may find more common ground with the DPP. Uh, unsurprisingly, the Chinese government did not react well to Lai's victory, which leaves the independence-minded DPP largely in control of Taiwanese foreign and military policy. Beijing criticized Lai as a minority president and pointed to the legislative vote as evidence that the DPP doesn't represent the quote-unquote will of the Taiwanese people, whatever one supposes that might be. Uh, The Chinese foreign ministry has also been lashing out at any foreign government that has offered congratulations to lie. Uh, The Taiwanese foreign ministry has responded by essentially telling its Chinese counterpart to get over it. Uh, In North Korea, the North Korean military conducted its first ballistic missile test of the year on Sunday. uh, And on Monday, state media reported that it had successfully tested to borrow the AP's terminology, quote, a new solid fuel intermediate range missile tipped with a hypersonic warhead, uh, end quote. There's, of course, no way to confirm this, but Pyongyang has been working on solid fuel missiles for quite a while now, so that part at least seems plausible. North Korea has also been working to develop hypersonic weapons, but it's uh, unclear uh, how far they've advanced on that front, uh, though it is possible they're now getting assistance from Russia in return for weapons. On to Africa and Sudan, where the Sudanese military reportedly killed at least seven civilians in airstrikes in White Nile State on Sunday. The death toll aside, this incident is noteworthy in that it suggests a further expansion of the military rapid support forces conflict in the region south of Khartoum, where White Nile is located. In Somalia, Somali officials are threatening to go to war with Ethiopia over the status of the separatist Somaliland region. As we've been covering, the Ethiopian government recently signed a memorandum of understanding with the unrecognized Somaliland government, giving Ethiopia access to the Somali port city of Berbera. The parties have since expanded their relationship to include discussions around military cooperation, and it seems likely that Ethiopia will become the first country to recognize Somaliland's independence as part of this burgeoning relationship. The Somali government unsurprisingly opposes the port deal as well as anything else that might legitimize Somaliland's independence claims. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the United Nations has begun withdrawing its peacekeeping operation from that country and says it expects to complete the process no later than the end of this year. Some 2,000 peacekeepers currently deployed in South Kivu province are expected to leave in the initial phase, which will be completed by the end of April. The forces remaining 11,500 peacekeepers will withdraw from North Kivu and Ituri provinces in subsequent phases. The Congolese government asked the UN to wrap things up last year, citing the peacekeepers' failure to prevent militant violence and growing hostility toward them among Congolese citizens. The UN Security Council voted in December to begin winding the operation down. In Comoros, voters there headed to the polls on Sunday for a presidential election that will almost certainly be won by three-term incumbent Azali Asumani, and by that I mean Asumani has almost certainly rigged the election to ensure his victory. Opposition candidates are already complaining about serious shenanigans, including sightings of pre-marked ballots at polling sites and irregularities in terms of the operating hours of a number of polling sites.
uh, onto Europe and Ukraine. The New York Times says that the Ukrainian military is not having a very good time these days. Uh, I'll read you a bit of their piece. Ukraine's military prospects are looking bleak. Western military aid is no longer assured at the same levels as years past. Ukraine's summer counteroffensive in the south, where Jaeger, who is a Ukrainian soldier, was wounded days after it began, is over, having failed to meet any of its objectives. And now Russian troops are on the attack, especially in the country's east. The town of Marinka has all but fallen. Avdivka is being slowly encircled. A push on the Chasiv Yar near Bakhmut is expected. Farther north, outside Kupyansk, the fighting has barely slowed since the fall. The joke among Ukrainian troops goes like this. The Russian army is not good or bad. It is just long. The Kremlin has more of everything, more men, ammunition, and vehicles. And they are not stopping, despite their mounting numbers of wounded and dead. But the soldier's joke has had another certain truth to it. Neither side has distinguished themselves with tactics that have led to a breakthrough on the battlefield. Instead, it has been a deadly dance of small technological advances on both sides that have yet to turn the tide, leaving a conflict that looks like a modernized version of World War I's Western Front, sheer mass versus mass. Uh, this is me again. Uh, needless to say, that is a conflict that favors Russia probably not decisively in that the Russians are still limited to picking at the edges of Ukrainian held territory, but enough that the dream of restoring Ukraine's 2014 borders should really be laid to rest if it hasn't been already. Uh, in Denmark, new Danish King Frederick X, not Frederick X, Frederick X, formally took the throne on Sunday. Uh, he succeeded his mother, the now-retired Queen Margaret II, who announced on New Year's Eve that she intended to step down. She had been the longest reigning monarch in Europe, uh, but after 52 years, I guess even being the ruler of a country starts to get a bit routine. Maybe she'll, you know, get to do a little traveling now or take up bird watching or something, uh, you know, rooting for her. Uh, the Danish monarchy is essentially a symbolic institution akin to its British counterpart. In the Americas, in Ecuador, some 178 Ecuadorian prisoners, prison staffers, 158 of them guards who'd been taken hostage amid nationwide unrest over the past week, have now been freed, according to Ecuadorian prison authorities. President Daniel Noboa credited the country's security forces for securing their release, but I'm not clear whether they achieved this via negotiation or force. At least 19 people have been killed across the country since Monday as the overall security situation has been deteriorating. Security forces have arrested some 1,000 people since Noboa imposed a state of emergency and declared the country to be in a state of, quote, internal conflict, end quote, against criminal gangs. In Guatemala, it would appear that some sort of attempted coup has interrupted the planned inauguration of Guatemalan President-elect Bernardo Arevalo. Uh, the swearing-in ceremony was scheduled to take place at 3 p.m. Sunday in Guatemala, but the opposition-controlled Congress refused to open its new session in an attempt to forestall Arevalo's accession. Uh, the move was met with immediate opposition from both the assembled international dignitaries and a crowd of Arevalo's supporters that had gathered outside the legislative building in Guatemala City. As we've covered in this newsletter, establishment Guatemalan politicians have been trying to find a way to disqualify or otherwise undermine Arevalo since his victory in August presidential runoff likely concerned about his professed anti-corruption agenda. I do not know where the situation stands at present. At last word, before I put this newsletter together, the Congress had finally returned to session after a de delay of several hours, but it was not yet clear whether the inaug inauguration would actually proceed. Reuters reported an escalation escalation in the number of police deployed in Guatemala City, potentially to counter any unrest from that assembled crowd of Arevalo supporters. 
Uh, and finally, in the United States, uh, Akbar Shahid Ahmed at HuffPost reports on the White House Middle East expert Brett McGurk's astoundingly stupid plan for solving the present crisis in the Middle East. Uh, and I'll read you just the intro to his piece. Top White House official Brett McGurk is quietly floating a controversial plan to reconstruct Gaza after Israel's assault concludes, HuffPost has learned, despite serious concerns from some officials inside the administration that it would sow the seeds for future instability in the region. In recent weeks, McGurk has been pitching national security officials on a plan suggesting an approximately 90-day timeline for what should happen once active fighting in Gaza ends, three U.S. officials said. It argues that stability can be achieved in the devastated Palestinian region if American, Israeli, Palestinian, and Saudi officials launch an urgent diplomatic effort that prioritizes the establishment of Israel-Saudi ties, the official continued. Such a development is widely referred to as normalization given Saudi Arabia's refusal to recognize Israel since its founding in 1948. Uh, This is me again. McGurk has advised four straight U.S. presidents on Middle Eastern affairs. I think the results speak for themselves. And his sole big idea throughout that stretch has been a Saudi-Israeli diplomatic agreement. Uh, As Ahmed points out in his piece, frustration over the possibility of such a deal, which would throw the Palestinian people and their statehood aspirations under the bus, probably contributed to the impetus for the October 7th attacks. Now he's apparently touting the idea of Joe Biden taking a victory tour, this is in Ahmed's piece, through the Middle East to trumpet this proposed deal as, quote, an answer to Gaza's pain, end quote. It's far from clear how it would answer Gaza's pain, and given McGurk's track record, every reason to believe that it wouldn't. There's no reason to believe the Saudi monarchy would be willing to risk normalizing relations with Israel right now when polling indicates that supermajorities of Saudi citizens would utterly reject such a move. There's really no reason to believe that the Israeli government, this Israeli government above all, though any realistic Israeli government really, would make the kind of meaningful concessions on Palestinian statehood that might make this scenario plausible. The Biden administration apparently uh, hoping to blow this story up as much as possible, uh, this is sort of a little postscript, uh, accused Ahmed of fabricating it, a charge that drew substantial media backlash and that the White House has now mostly walked back. Uh, so things are going great in the White House. On that note, uh, thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter. And thanks to those of you who are Foreign Exchanges subscribers. I couldn't do this without you. Uh, and uh, until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye.